Well, good morning again. In case you missed it earlier, my name is Sean, the lead pastor here. Special welcome to all of our guests here today. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can take your order of worship here and scan this QR code here on the back cover, and that'll take you to a form where you can give us some information. If you'd like to meet with me or a member of the staff, we'd love to sit down with you and talk to you about our church or whatever you want to talk about, but scanning that's the first step to get there. And then if you are one of our guests here today, in a few moments we're going to be walking through a passage of Scripture And today's passage is found on page 730 of that black chair Bible there in front of you if you'd like to follow along. And um, if you do not have a Bible at home, please do take that one with you as our gift. We would love for you to have that. So we're working our way through this Old Testament prophet named Micah. And we've seen that God's people are in a rough time. Uh, He tells us that like a woman in labor... The pain of the moment that they're in is going to lead to something new and wonderful. So God is not going to deliver them from this hardship, but God will be with them in it, and he will rescue them from it. So what's going on in history at this point, to give us some insight, is this empire named Assyria invades the northern part of the country called Israel, conquers it, takes over the ten tribes and just exiles them. They're gone. They're, they're lost to history. The ten tribes are gone. Then they invade the southern part called Judah, and they besiege Jerusalem, and then they up and leave unexpectedly. They're just gone. There's no battle. Jerusalem wakes up, and they're just gone. So as we walk through this, here's one thing I want you to remember. Because sometimes as we go through minor prophets, especially those who are like, okay, this is great if I get together and play Bible trivia, what, what have you got for me? So the minor prophets are really applicable to the Christian life. This is not God sending prophets to people who don't know him and saying, hey, you better shape up. This is God sending prophets to people who are already in covenant with him. They have already been wed, so to speak, by covenant. These are his people who've experienced some of his salvific grace and so he is coming to them and critiquing them and helping them become better disciples we could say so as a christian when we walk through these minor prophets there's lots of stuff here for god to critique us when we look at these judgments and disciplines that he does to his own people but since it's applicable to the christian life let's do a couple caveats to make sure we don't go down some wrong paths first of all is As God's judgments on Israel are applicable to hardships in our life and disciplines, we need to remember that God does discipline those he loves, but he doesn't forsake his people. See, so Christians, once you have been united to Jesus by faith, you can't be disunited. You cannot lose your salvation. So don't read this in terms of, oh, I'm no longer a Christian if I'm going through bad things. No, John 10, 28, if you want to look it up, Jesus himself said that I hold you in my hand and no one can take you from my hand. Here's a good way to remember it, if you need to remember this. If we could lose our salvation, we would. Okay, it's just that simple. But... God does discipline his people. God does come to Christians and he does discipline us into greater obedience. Especially maybe we fall into some grievous, repeated sin. He will bring hardship to help purify us. Or maybe we need to be reminded of how sinful we really are and how much we need his grace. And so he withdraws the feeling of his closeness. 
And we were, are, we're reminded how much we're without hope without him. Those are all judgments that God brings to his people, but it doesn't mean he's forsaking you when he does that. God does not abandon his people. So with that background, let's turn to God's word now. We're looking at Micah, starting chapter 4, verse 11. It's found on page 10 in your order of worship. Again, page 730 in the Black Chair Bible. Now, many nations have assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? How gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we're grateful for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us exactly as you wish to be known. And so we ask, Lord, that even now you would open this text up to us, that by your spirit we would see your truth for our growth and for our transformation. I pray you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So walking through this passage, we see that while repentance can bring relief and even blessing, God promises ultimately to bring a strong shepherd to permanently heal his people. And that gets us to our theme for today. We're going to kind of orbit around this morning is, is this. Just because it turned out okay doesn't mean God's done working on us. Just because it turns out okay for you in the end doesn't mean God is done with his work on you. He is still doing things in your life. So the first thing we see, we see judgment delayed in this passage. Back in verse 6, God promised that he would gather or assemble his wayward, wounded people so he could bless them with his exalted grace. Now, using the same phrases in verse 11, he says he has now allowed the hostile nations to gather together against Zion. And you can see they are itching to destroy it. If you picked up on it when we were reading it, you were right. Micah uses adult-themed imagery to show the hatred of Assyria and its desire to plunder the temple. His original hearers would be offended that he put it this way in terms of a personal assault. But his hearers would also miss the irony that their faithlessness and injustice that he has cataloged the last three chapters that how they have been treating each other in God's land, in God's name, is just as vile of an offense 
and a violation of Zion as an invasion would be. Their behavior has been that offensive to God. And so God is gathering these nations together against his people to bring repentance. The invaders do want to hurt God's people. What you do in the ancient Near East is basically it's not just army on army. It's God versus God. And so you would come in, you would defeat their army, you would go to the temples, and you would desecrate the temples to show that your God is powerless, our God wins, submit. And so they want to do that. They want to come in and desecrate the temple to get God's people to submit to them. I want to make sure we're all tracking, so let's look together at the kids' version of verse 11. Here's how we put it for them. But for right now, all these godless people have ganged up against you, saying, we want to hurt God's people and spit on God's temple. See, while they are God's tools of destruction, they are still anxious to hurt God's people and to embarrass God. Oh, dear Christian, we need to remember that. We need to remember that our enemy sees us as a threat to destroy and that he is not neutral towards God. You know, especially those of us in, in a world that values theological uh, clarity and specificity, we can sometimes be so keen to emphasize our own internal sinfulness that we can forget that the Bible also teaches that there is an objective, real, personal enemy of God named Satan who seeks to do harm. Jesus himself said that Satan seeks to steal, to kill, to destroy. He wants to embarrass God. He wants Christians to mess up, hopefully publicly, or to fall into a powerless, anemic, shallow faith. And so he brings assault. He brings attack. He comes after God's people. Many of you have probably experienced this. I know I have, man. This past fall from probably mid-October to mid-November, there's no other way to describe it except I was, under, uh, I was under spiritual assault. And I know for some of you, I just lost you, and you're like, whoa, we're Presbyterians, so we don't do that. But there's no other way to describe it. I was, I was angry. I was irritable. I was petulant, just, just for no good reason whatsoever. I just was. And, and, an, old, and an older friend sat down in my office and just confronted me and said, you are an angry man recently. What is wrong with you? Which is, you know, lovely to hear. But the Lord used that to lead me into repentance, and I, and I just saw so clearly that, man, I had been in God's Word so much as a technician for y'all to give you stuff. But I, it had been a long time since I had been in the Word as a son who needed bread. You see, and when we coast on autopilot in the Christian life, it, it is deadly because we forget we have an enemy. And oftentimes, he wants us just to coast in this anemic, shallow faith. And so God brings hardships to get you out of that. That's what he does the people of Micah's day to get them out of their stupor. These, these gathered nations are God's tools, but they're still ignorant of God's plans, he said. They don't recognize that they are actually tools for repentance and reward. They've been gathered together, they think, to assault and to steal, but God has gathered them to be sheaves at threshing time. Now again, that's an agrarian image. We don't get that. So when you think of sheaves, uh, I mean, do humans eat sheaves? Anybody ever had a sheave butter and jelly sandwich right? How about some sheave and, you know, steak together? No? 
about sheave-flavored Pop-Tarts? Anybody ever have those? Okay, no. Sheaves are like kale, okay? They're inedible. You don't eat them, you, okay? And they're not a superfood, okay? okay? Basically, you grab your crop, whatever it is, okay? You grab the whole stalk of the crop. You take it to the threshing floor, you throw it on the ground, and you have your ox stomp on it, dragging this wooden sledge over it. And if everything goes to plan, you come back through and you scoop up the stalks, and what's left is the seed. And so you eat the seed, and you take the stalks, and you burn them. The point is, it's not good to be sheaves. And so when God says you're sheaves, you need to say, oops, I don't want to be sheaves. See, but God here shows his providential power and that he orchestrates events for his glory and the ultimate good of his people. He brings these hardships not just to bring repentance, but then so that afterwards he can bring reward and blessing as well. Back to my story. You know, after the Lord helped me see and gave, gave me repentance, man, I got to tell you, we had one of the best, most loving, joyful peaceful holiday seasons we've had in a long time. I mean, it's become kind of like a meme in our culture, hasn't it, that the holidays are when families fight, right? You know, and one of the things about being a Protestant, not a Catholic, is I'm married and have children. And so, you know, it happens in our house too. But you know what? When you've gone through a period of being irritable and petulant and you see it and you hate it and you repent of it, man, you're just so joyous to be a child of God that none of that stuff bothers you anymore. Or when others during the holiday seasons try to pick fights, which happens, it just rolls off you because you're so anchored in the gospel. At least that's what I experienced. That's what God does here to his people. He brings them through this hardship so they can find repentance and then have reward. That's his plan in this passage. But it's all, again, wrapped up in an agrarian image that we might miss. So let's look together at the kids' version of verse 13, see if we can translate that agrarian image. <clears throat> says this, stand up, people of Jerusalem. God will make you strong and then use you to crush those godless bullies. You'll take all their stuff and bring it to God as a holy offering. Okay, so what's going on here is Assyria does invade Judah. Assyria does surround Jerusalem, and then they leave, right? We already said that. But there's more to the story. You can look this up yourself later. 2 Kings 19 and 2 Chronicles 32, if you're interested, tells us that an angel of the Lord went through the camp and killed so many Assyrians overnight that the next day they woke up and fled and just left, leaving all their stuff behind. Plunder for God's people. Now, in case you're curious about this account, here's great. The king of Assyria at this time, his name is Sennacherib. Isn't that a great name for a king? Right? Sennacherib. Like, anyway, archaeologists in 1830 working at the site of Nineveh, because they found it, they found this cylinder that had his name on it, and it turns out it's this chronicle of all of his battles. And they translated this thing, and guess what? In his own account of his battles, he confesses to leaving Jerusalem without a fight. Right there, you can look it up. Now, obviously, he doesn't say why, but he says he left. So I want to look at two phrases from verse 13 as we think about this historical event that God used to bless his people. First is the little phrase there in verse 13, devote their gain to the Lord. So what that means is that all that plunder, they didn't take it and keep it. They either donated it or they destroyed it 
Either way, it wasn't theirs to keep, and God didn't need the wealth of the pagans to increase his glory, so they devoted it to him. And sometimes it was destroyed, sometimes it was put in the temple treasury. We don't know which specific instance is happening here. But the point is, is that these repentant people were like, I don't need all this stuff. You can have it, Lord. I give it to you. Just truly repentant people can let go of that stuff. So with that in mind, I'm going to invite everybody here. Take out your, your order of worship if you have it with you. Okay, and let's turn to page 14, if you would. A little class participation time. You might notice there at the bottom of page 14, budget numbers. March is our last month, fiscally speaking. Our budget year goes April 1 to April 1, so we're coming up on our last month. And you might notice we are $51,000 under in giving this year. Now, thanks be to God, our deacons are great. Your staff is amazing, and they have pinched so many pennies that we are only under about 48000 in spending. So it's not that hard to close that gap, but that's still $51,000 of ministry that we felt called to do that we've had to say no to because we just don't have the funds. So I would challenge you at this point, based on Micah 13, is a, a repentant person trusts God for their finances. They can let go and they don't have to hoard. And if you haven't made it a practice to systematically support the church, this would be a really good time to start. And if you have, and maybe you haven't been giving or you've been holding some back, I would encourage you to examine your heart and see if the Lord is calling you to perhaps devote more of your resources to him so we can make our budget. And if not, then we prayerfully picked the wrong budget last year, and that's okay. No harm, no foul. So that's the first phrase, devote their gain to the Lord. The second phrase I want to look at in verse 13, if you guys want to all turn back to page 10, is that phrase Micah uses, Lord of the whole earth. The kings of Assyria, in great humility, took that title for themselves. They called themselves the king of the whole world. And in the Old Testament accounts of this event, when Sennacherib and his army surround Jerusalem, they start doing negotiations publicly, right? And all these people are on the walls of Jerusalem listening in. And so what you were supposed to do is you had a specific language for diplomacy that you spoke and all the nobles could speak. And the regular people spoke a different language, like probably Aramaic at this point. Sennacherib has his envoy speaking in Aramaic, the voice of the people. You can even read it in the accounts, the, the officials of Israel are like, uh, can you stop talking so they can all understand what's going on and go back to the regular language? Because Sennacherib wanted to scare the people of Jerusalem. He mocks God, and he basically says, Look, y'all, no other gods of any other people have beaten this army. You think your little god can beat this army? And then he runs out to the tip of the Titanic, spreads his arms, and goes, I'm king of the world! And so Micah comes in and says, Let's give some theological clarification. No, the God of Israel is the Lord of the whole earth. And so he shows his power overnight while his people were sleeping because they repented and prayed for help. How many of you in the room, Christian or not, man, you have gone to prayer because you've got nowhere else to go, right? Your only hope is for God to do something. There have been many times in my life, and that's all I pray. It's like, Lord, if you don't do something about this, no one else can. And then once the pressure gets off, things get easier, how, how does that fervency in, in prayer keep working for you? Right? How does that routinely in the scriptures work for you when, when the pressure is off? 
it slips into apathy and autopilot, doesn't it? It was the same for the people in Micah's day and beyond after Assyria left, because just because it turned out okay doesn't mean God is done working on us. And we see starting in chapter 5, there's a, there's a turn where to judgment is suffered. So starting here in chapter 5, Micah is given a glimpse of the future. Roughly 130 years in the future, Babylon comes, they invade Judah, they surround Jerusalem, and they don't leave. They win. There's no deliverance. In fact, verse 1 tells us that, what's it say, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. It's very insulting, but it's also an official act. Like when one king conquered another king, you made him kneel before you, and you struck him on the cheek, because no one does that to the king, except a bigger, badder king, right? This shows how far the Davidic monarchy will fall at this point. And then the hope comes. Look with me at verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. I know it's not even Christmas. We're talking about Bethlehem. But what do you expect from the guy who ruined Christmas by talking about Hosea, right? So, see, what happens is out of tiny little insignificant Bethlehem, so small that back in the book of Joshua when they were listing out all the towns each tribe got, they didn't even bother listing Bethlehem because it was too small. Out of that tiny little hometown of David, out of Davidsburg will come a preordained ruler in Israel. Back in 2 Samuel 7, God came to David and said, I will always have one of your heirs on the throne. And so God fulfills that promise for himself from little David Berg. And did you catch that little phrase there in verse 4? God says, I'll do, he, he will rule for me. You see, God's plans for God's people are about God, not about us. He does things for his glory not because we're just so cute he can't help himself. There's actually a lot of hope there because it means that we don't have to be worthy of God's promises for him to fulfill them. So when that voice comes to you and says, you're too unworthy, you're not wanted, you're not enough, hope comes in remembering that God knows all of that and his faithfulness to his promises is based on his worthiness, not yours. So in God's plans, Jerusalem will fall, the temple will burn, the people will be exiled. That's all wrapped up in verse 3, he shall give them up. But great David's greater son will come. He will gather, it says, all his wayward brothers and sisters together into the true Israel. Jesus himself grabs this promise from Micah 5 when he talks about having sheep from another fold he has to go talk to, referring to Gentiles. We also see this partially fulfilled at the day of Pentecost itself and all these Jewish people from all across the Roman Empire and some Gentiles received the Holy Spirit and they confessed Jesus as Messiah and Lord becoming the church. So this is all beautifully going to happen. But before that happens, what does Micah tell us greater David will do? Look at me at verse 4. It says, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. He will shepherd his flock using the strength of God himself. What does it mean to shepherd? 
I mean, again, we say that so often, but it's an agrarian image. We, we tend to be very sentimental about it. But like the famous image from Psalm 23, right? Your rod and your staff comfort me. All right, so the rod is basically a club. It's a weapon. The staff is that big old hook thing, right? The lamb wanders off and falls into the ravine. You lean down with the hook and you pull it out. It starts watering off. You lean down with the hook, you trip it, and you pull it back, right? Uh, we love the staff. It's a very good shepherding instrument. What about the rod? Well, the rod is a weapon. You beat wolves who attack from the outside. And then as Jesus himself said, you also use the rod on the goats who are inside the flock. Because the shepherd shepherds in the strength of the Lord. There's great security in that strong image that God's people will be brought together under a great shepherd and it doesn't matter whether it's Assyria or Satan or your own sinful heart, his rod will defend you from that. And he will do it in the security of what to say, his majesty, his excellence, his greatness. We can rest in Jesus' excellence instead of trying so hard to manufacture our own excellence. Because instead of judgment suffered, what we need is judgment absorbed. Starting in the second part of verse 4. Do you notice there the second part of verse 4? It says, they shall dwell when he stands. Literally, it's they shall sit securely when he stands. Great David will stand in the strength of the Lord, giving them the place where they can sit secure because it says he shall be great. The whole reason they were treating each other so poorly, robbing from each other in God's name, plundering each other's property, was because they wanted to be great, but instead they can rest in Jesus' greatness. Many of you have come up to me recently in the last three or four weeks. I'm not sure what's going on, but um, I've had several conversations with people telling me, hey, I tried to friend you on Facebook and you haven't responded yet. And I've had to respond, I don't do Facebook. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't even know what the password is anymore. I have one, it's out there, you can see it, but I don't, I don't know what it is. And I had to get off of Facebook because I could feel that pull on my own heart of wanting to create and display my greatness. I want to put this picture of me doing something cool. I want, to put, I want to say this thing. I want to share this so people will see how great I am. But you see, I don't have to do that because united to Jesus, I rest in his greatness. And that's where I get my security. I mean, don't you want that? That's promised to you in verse 5 where it says, he shall be their peace. Not merely the absence of conflict but a wholesome integrity resting in his greatness and his majesty. All right, so let's wrap this up. Peace. That's what we want. That's what we long for. That's what the people of Micah's day long for as well. Peace. We need peace with each other, which only comes from having peace with God. What we need is to be set free from the sin that enslaves us. And that's the promise that Micah sees here, that one day God would send his son, born in Bethlehem as great David's greater son, to shepherd his people into peace with the power and majesty of God. Micah didn't understand all that. He just knew he saw something. But then all four gospel writers and the rest of the New Testament say, this is Jesus who himself, how did he refer to himself? Jesus said, I'm the great shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep, grabbing this image from Micah 5. Jesus will absorb the judgment of God for our sins as our great shepherd. So instead of the rod of God's wrath beating us for our sin, 
Jesus absorbs the blows of that rod for us on the cross. And then He can reach down into the pit of our despair and selfishness, the prison of sin we're in, and with His shepherd's staff, He pulls us out and cares for us. That's what Micah promises here. It's what he sees but can barely articulate. And what we know in full is what? That to cure his constantly rebellious people, God comes to them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The great shepherd from Bethlehem will come and he will live the life that God deserves from his people. And then he will give it to us in his grace. He will then die the death that God demands of his sinful, wayward people and he will credit that death to us in his grace and then in his resurrection we can be united to him by faith and live in the peace that he promises that is what Micah looks at here oh if you want that cast aside everything you've called religion everything you think you know about Christianity just lay it aside and place your simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in this gospel and you can stand in his peace Let's pray together. How gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that this ancient text can challenge us today. And so, Lord, I pray for those here who know you, who've been united to your Son by faith, who confess you as Lord, that, Father, you would help us to see where we need to repent You would help us to hate our sin and to turn from it and to be more obedient for your glory and for our good. And we hold you to your promise to bless us when we do so. And Father, I pray for those here today who don't know you. I pray that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and shown to be crucified for sinners and raised for our new life, that you would be true to your promise to draw all people to him. Even now, Father, would you do your work of building your kingdom and cause many to repent and believe the gospel. We pray this, Father, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.